0: So as we get started this morning, I want to kind of give you guys a little bit of a roadmap of where we've been and where we're going as far as our sermons go. We, um, we ended the year with a series through Advent. We did four weeks looking at Isaiah 9-6 and the aspects of who the Messiah was going to be. We did that in collaboration with Doxa and All of Life and Transform uh, that culminated our Christmas Eve service um, a couple of weeks ago. Prior to that, however, we were studying uh, verse by verse through the book of Genesis. And we got from the beginning of Genesis all the way to through the end of chapter 11. And if you remember, if you were with us, there is a pretty significant break at chapter 11. Chapter 11 ends what's called primeval history. It's this these things that happened a long time ago that kind of give us a foundation for how the world works. Chapter 12 begins the story of a man named Abram and how God is gonna use him to get his plan of rescue for humanity going in the world. And so it seemed like a natural stopping point for us. So we're gonna stop there for a little while. Today, we're starting a new series. We're gonna be spending about 10 weeks starting to talk about uh, who we are as a people and who we are becoming. Uh, a lot of times you might call this vision and mission and values. And if you have a corporate job, you probably have heard about the vision statement and the core values and you roll your eyes, and you're like, oh, come on. I hate this kind of stuff because it doesn't mean anything. And that's true. If it's done badly, it doesn't mean anything. But I still think it can be helpful to, since it is a new year, to kind of refocus us on what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in the day that we live in? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in this church body? Who are we? What is true about us? And because of that reality, what should we be aiming for? Who are the people that we should be becoming? And so we're gonna spend about 10 weeks walking through some of the information on both of these banners, who we are and who we want to be as people of God. After that, uh, we're gonna take a we're gonna stay out of the Old Testament because the Old Testament Genesis. We're gonna stay in the New Testament. We're gonna go through the Book of Colossians. We spend fourteen weeks or so in the Book of Colossians, and then sometime this summer, we're gonna see what's up with that Abraham guy and get back into Genesis. Sound good? All right. <laughs> As always, if you have any questions about anything that comes up in the message today, you can text the Q&R number and I will uh, see what's on the Q&R phone when we're done. So we're starting this series on mission and vision and values and who we are and who we're becoming and, and what, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If you are a Christian here this morning, there's probably not going to be a lot that's going to be brand new to you. I know in our in our Genesis series, we were digging up all kinds of like ancient near east weirdness about the book of Genesis and everybody a lot of you thought it was super interesting. I think it's super interesting. We're not going to do a lot of that for a few weeks. But listen to what Peter says in 2nd Peter chapter 1. He says Therefore, I will always remind you about these things, even though you know them and are established in the truth you have now. I think it is right as long as I am in this bodily tent to wake you up with a reminder. And so Peter says, there's all of these important foundational things that we need to constantly remind ourselves of. So that's what we're going to do. Today, we're, we're going to talk about this, this phrase right here. It says, God is not hidden. It's kind of the, uh, the tagline on our logo. Um, it is the reason that we exist. And we're going to get into it in this text in Acts. But the foundational reality for you and I is that God is not hidden. God reveals himself to people. I want to start with a, a story. This is an old story. that takes place in the city of Athens in 500 B.C. Athens is is run by a man named Megacles, not Megatron, Megacles. And there is another guy named Cylon and he he wants to be in charge, so he and his supporters they, they rebel against Megacles. And there's this war in Athens. And it's not going well for Cylon. So he and his supporters go to the temple and they throw themselves at the feet of the priest for protection. And they send word to Megacles, have mercy on us. If you promise not to kill us, we will surrender to you. And Megacles says, okay, I will have mercy on you. And so Cylon and his men come out of the the temple where they've been protected. And Megacles breaks his word and has them killed. Everyone recognizes that this is a profound injustice. And somehow the gods must think so too because a plague befalls Athens. And so the, the priests and the oracles and everyone who has a connection to the gods, they start doing what they do and they pray and they, they offer sacrifice and there's hundreds of gods in Athens and they're, they're constantly beseeching their gods, please relieve us of this plague. We know Megacles has done this terrible thing, but we need relief and nothing works and they can't fix the problem. So they speak with the oracle and the oracle says, there's a, a prophet named Epimenides who lives in Crete. You need to go get him and he will tell you what to do. And so Epimenides, who's a a prophet, he's also a shepherd. He comes over from Crete. He brings some sheep with him. And he says, okay, you've prayed to all your gods. You've sought every solution that you possibly could, and it's not working to fix this plague. So here's what we're going to do. I brought these sheep with me. I have to assume that there is a God that exists that is both powerful enough, save you from this plague and good enough to want to. So we're going to sequester the sheep for a few days, get them really, really hungry. And then we're going to let them out onto the grassy field. And normally hungry sheep would eat when they're hungry, right? But if we see any sheep that refuse to eat and instead they just lay down in the grass, like they're content, like they're not hungry, We will take this as a sign from this unknown God and we'll mark that spot in the ground and we'll set up an altar and we'll offer sacrifice and ask this God that we've never heard of to please show mercy on us and heal our city. See, the Athenians, they, they have a habit of, of dealing with the problems of their lives with the tools that they have available to them. They have problems. Sometimes their problems are their own fault. Sometimes it's the fault of other people, but they have this stable of gods, this stable of resources that they call out to, to fix their problems. And we're the same way. Maybe we don't have Zeus and Poseidon but we have a plenty of things that we call out to that we lean on. We look to power and money and fame and sex and comfort and security and food and drink and shopping. And most of the time, the gods that we rely on, they work just fine. But occasionally there's a problem that they just can't seem to fix. And Epimenides in Athens, he believed that there must be some other god out there it was powerful enough to help and good enough to want to. And so some of the sheep, they laid down. They didn't eat the grass. They acted like they weren't hungry, even though they definitely were. And unfortunately, those were the sheep that they sacrificed on the altars that they built, wherever those sheep laid down. And they, the landscape of Athens was dotted with these altars to the unknown God. So fast forward 500 years, the apostle Paul bearing the good news about Jesus enters the city of Athens. And he starts preaching the gospel and he's considered kind of a, kind of a weirdo because the Athenians they're into religion. They're into arguing about theology and philosophy and sociology and, and so Paul shows up and he has this new religion this new philosophy, and he's telling everybody that he knows about it. And he meets the philosophers, and they're, they're the gatekeepers of knowledge in the city. And if he's going to be preaching some new religion, they have to pass through him. And so they, they invite him to what's called the Areopagus. This is a picture of the Areopagus. It's just a big rock in the middle of Athens, and all the philosophers would go up on this rock to talk philosophy. And so they invite Paul to come up and tell them what he believes. And so he s- tells them the story of Jesus. He tells them the good news of the gospel in a very specific way, which we're going to get into. But his point. For the Athenians is that God reveals himself to people. If you don't know, that's why our church is called Revelation Church. It's not because we like biblical prophecy a lot. We do. <laughs> it's fun. But God reveals himself to people. And I want to talk about three ways that God reveals himself this morning. The first way is God reveals himself in our seeking. Look at verse 22. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing your objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. God is revealed in our seeking. Why is there an altar in Athens to an unknown God? Because 500 years earlier, Epimenides knew that there had to be some being out there that was both powerful enough to cure the disease of the Athenians and good enough to want to. What Paul says is, you're very religious people. And the reality is every one of us are religious people. Paul Tillich says that religion is a state of being grasped by an ultimate concern, a concern which qualifies all other concerns as preliminary and which itself contains the answer to the question of the meaning of our life. So the question is, what is the most important thing in your life? And you might not be able to answer that question immediately, but if you investigate your private thoughts, your browser history, your bank account, your calendar, the symbols that you identify with. Maybe it's a Gadsden flag on the back of your truck, or maybe it's a rainbow flag on your house. Maybe it's an AR-15 or a peace sign. Maybe it's a specific brand name, Gucci or Apple, Carhartt or Ford. Maybe it's the bumper stickers that you have on your car that say something. They're not the ultimate thing, but they point you to what matters most. And Paul tells the philosophers something that they already know, that that God doesn't live in these shrines that people make. He doesn't need anything from you. In the ultimate, in the quest for ultimate meaning, we go after these things, these lesser things. We search for what the most important thing is. And we know deep down, I think, that our Second Amendment rights or a new pair of designer boots or the work ethic that your parents taught you, those things, they just aren't good enough. They don't measure up. But we go to them and we make them the most important. We prioritize our lives around a thousand different things that we hope that will soothe our existential dread. And why do we do that? Because they give us control. Sky Jitani says, everyone is religious. Why? Because everyone experiences the same dangerous world. Everyone becomes afraid and everyone looks for a way to overcome their fears through a system of control. Paul tells the philosophers that you seek what is ultimate, but you settle for what you can control. If I can make an altar, if I can craft a God in my own image, if I can get a handle on money or career or relationship or whatever, I can control it and I I will feel safe. But the God that you are really searching for, the one that actually has the power and the goodness to love and care for you, cannot be controlled by you. And yet the very fact that we seek after this ultimate thing is evidence that it exists. C.S. Lewis says it this way. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. We search for meaning in life and continually get disappointed by the things that we put our hope in but we are given more evidence that there is something beyond those things that truly satisfies us. Augustine wrote in his confessions, in yourself, speaking to God, you rouse us, giving us delight in glorifying you because you made us with yourself as our goal and your heart and our heart is restless until it rests in you. The Athenians have all of these ways of seeking meaning, and none of them really work. Insomuch that they have this one for the, the unknown God that, that they still have and they still worship. And, and maybe there's something out there that I haven't discovered that will satisfy me. God reveals himself in our seeking. But God also reveals himself in our relationships. Look at verse 26. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, then we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Paul says that God has made you the ethnicity that you are. He has placed you in your family. He decided that you would be alive in 2022. He is responsible for your moving to Court d'Alene. And you thought it was all Gavin Newsom's fault. Paul defines us as members of human groups. In Paul's mind, we are best understood not as solitary individuals, but as people in relationship. And what does Paul say? Why did did God put us into these groups? So that we would seek him. There is something about our participation in the life of a family, in the life of a community, in the life of a society that makes us think about God. You know, I I really love my kids. I I wonder where that love comes from. I wonder if anyone loves me the way that I love my kids. You know, that guy that's part of our community, he really hurt those other people. That's, That's wrong. There's something in me that screams out, you're not allowed to treat other people like that. I wonder where that sense of justice comes from. See, as we interact with others, as we form relationships with other human beings, it sparks something in us that makes us think about God. Our identity comes in our relationship to others and we are not fully ourselves by ourselves. That's why solitary confinement is a punishment in prison. That's why Tom Hanks made Wilson the volleyball because he needed someone else in order to for his own life to have meaning. And Paul says that relationships are one of the ways that God uses to reveal himself to us. But what if I don't like my family? What if I don't like my community or my society? What if people have hurt me or abused me or neglected me? Is it possible that God intends to use those exact things to reveal himself to you? To be hurt, to be disappointed, to be dissatisfied with human relationships might be the very thing that God is using to point you to the one that will never harm you, always come through for you and completely satisfy you. My daughter, Nora, and I are reading Genesis together. We just got to the story of Joseph. If you're unfamiliar with Joseph's story, he is one of 12 brothers, the sons of Jacob. And he's the youngest, from, he's the second youngest, but for a while, he's the youngest. And he's kind of a brat. He's kind of dad's favorite. And all of his brothers kind of hate him. And so they do what every, you know, every family relationship, I'm sure you can relate, they sell him into slavery. I didn't have brothers. I don't know. <laughs> but then he goes down into Egypt as a slave and he gets sold to this man named Potiphar and he's a great slave because he's super responsible, but his he's also really attractive and Potiphar's wife likes him. And so she does some shenanigans and he gets falsely accused of sexual assault and he gets thrown into prison. But then he becomes a really great prisoner because he's super responsible and becomes kind of the head, of, head prisoner, but he's still in prison and he has some dreams. And finally, because of his dreams, he gets called before Pharaoh and he interprets Pharaoh's dream and Pharaoh's super impressed. And he makes Joseph the second in command in all of Egypt. And what that allows Joseph to do is to prepare the country for a coming famine and store up grain. And all that stored grain becomes an asset for all of the nations around Egypt because they are experiencing the famine as well. And they all come down to Egypt to buy grain. And in the midst of this, his brothers, who threw him into slavery, they come down to buy grain for their families. And it's a long story, but there's a reunion, and the whole family moves down to Egypt and is cared for. And then Joseph's father dies. And Joseph's brothers think, you know what? Joseph's been really nice to us because dad's alive, and now dad's gone, and he's going to enact vengeance against us for doing terrible things to him. But then listen to what Joseph says in Genesis 50. He says, But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. See, Joseph's broken family and his hard life taught him more about the love of God than any amount of ease and comfort would have. His circumstances, his relational circumstances shaped him in profound ways and made him into the man that he became. So why do our human relationships point us in the direction of God? It's because our relationships with one another are modeled off of God's relationship with himself and with us. Paul quotes uh, two philosophers here. He quotes Epimenides, the guy with the sheep from 500 years ago, and a guy named Erratus. Epimenides wrote, for in him we live and move and have our being. And Erratus wrote, for we are also his offspring. Both of these poets are pagans, and they're both writing about Zeus. And Paul knows their writings, and he uses them to make his point to the Athenians. There's a really, this is a side note, but but don't be afraid to interact with things that you do not believe to be true. Be be wise, center your discipleship to Jesus on the scriptures and teachers that you can trust. But Paul shows us that there is wisdom that can be found everywhere, especially when you're trying to interact with people that are very different from you, figure out what is meaningful to them. And if it's helpful for you to share the gospel, use it. Epimenides and Eratus were writing about Zeus, but Paul holds up these writings finds them lacking, and reshapes them to be about Yahweh, about Jesus. And he says, since we are God's offspring, in verse 29, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. We are made in God's image. We've, we talked about that extensively in Genesis earlier this year, last year. In some ways, because we're made in God's image, God is like us and we are like God, not in every way, but in some ways. And Paul says, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is something that we can invent. The divine nature is the thing that invented us. When we look at the complexity of our relationships, the depth of our personalities, we are seeing small pieces of something that's bigger, better, greater, more perfect, and more good, the person of the Godhead. Think about it this way. What's what's a really great song that everybody knows? Who's got a really great song? Dust Dust in the Wind. Who wrote Dust in the Wind? Kansas. Is Dust in the Wind more valuable or less valuable than Kansas? More valuable. Incorrect. You name another Kansas. (laughs) But would dust in the wind exist without Kansas? No. No. So Kansas is the greater entity. Dust in the wind is the lesser one. And this is what Paul is saying here. If... If we are making things with our own human abilities, they are by default less than us. And how is it that we could then make them greater than us and worship them? That is foolish. God says this in Isaiah 44 in this just amazing passage. Listen to, let's just listen to God's sarcasm here. (laughs) The iron worker labor, labors over the coals, shapes the idol with hammers and works it with his strong arm. Also, he grows hungry and his strength fails. He doesn't drink water and is faint. The woodworker stretches out a measuring line. He outlines it with a stylus. He shapes it with chisels and outlines it with a compass. He makes it according to a human form, like a beautiful person, to dwell in a temple. He cuts down cedars for his use, or he takes a cypress or an oak. He lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a laurel, and the rain makes it grow. A person can use it for fuel. He takes some of it and warms himself. Also, he kindles a fire and bakes bread. He even makes it into a god and worships it. He makes an idol from it and bows down to it. He burns half of it in the fire, and he roasts meat on the other half. He eats the roast and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I see the blaze. He makes a a God or his idol with the rest of it. He bows down to it and worships and he prays to it. Save me for you are my God. Such people do not comprehend and cannot understand for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see and their minds so they cannot understand. No one comes to his senses. No one has the perception or insight to say, I burned half of it in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and ate. Should I make something detestable with the rest of it? Should I bow down to a block of wood? See, God is mocking us for making things that we make ourselves into things that we trust in, things that we worship. And we deceive ourselves when we think that we are going to get closer to ultimate satisfaction through things that we have made, lesser things. The created thing that is closest to the divine is us. It's people. But Paul will go on to say, actually, it's one person in particular. Because God reveals himself in our seeking. God reveals himself in our relationships, but God also reveals himself in Jesus. Look at verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul says at one time, everyone was ignorant. We just didn't know any better. And that God is, has let us try our best to figure it out. But now things have changed. In verse 27, he said, perhaps the people, they might reach out and find him. Right, have you ever, um, for, for a while, I, I, was, I was traveling to Portland Uh, once a month and I was, I drove quite a bit, but sometimes I flew and the the only flight I could take to get there in time for my morning class on a Thursday was like the 5 a.m. out of Spokane. I don't even think they have it anymore. But in order to make the 5 a.m. out of Spokane, I had to get up at like 2.30 in the morning. And I really didn't like to wake my wife up at 2.30 in the morning. And so I would get dressed in the dark. I don't know if you've ever done this, where where you get dressed and then you get somewhere and you realize i think my shirt's on backwards because in the dark you don't you just can't see anything right like you're you're groping around and you, you you're feeling i think is that a sweatshirt or are those pants i don't know and and you just got to figure it out because you you just cannot see and paul says for for millennia god allowed people to stumble around with the idea that these little clues, these little breadcrumbs that God dropped for them would lead them to the truth. But he says, all that has changed. We were all stumbling around in the darkness, but the light has come on. It's obviously hard to figure out God completely or at all with intuition and reasoning. And and Paul says God overlooks that when we misstep. But now we have Jesus. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter one of his book, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he had spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. What does God care about? How does God treat people? What makes God angry? If you and I answer those questions in a way that doesn't look like Jesus, we are not accurately understanding who God is. And today, all of us in this room, because of Jesus, are commanded to repent, to turn away from whatever it is that we cling to and turn toward Jesus, to follow him because he will judge us based on what Paul says is his own righteous standard. And how do we know that? Because even though Jesus died, he rose from the dead. And there are, there are powerful voices in our country urging us to abandon the way of Jesus because it doesn't work. And as Christians, we need to stop listening to those voices. The reality is the only way forward is Jesus' way. Jesus is the ultimate expression of who God is and everything that we are searching for in our lives, all of the aching parts of our souls that we can't seem to figure out, they all find their satisfaction in Jesus. So Revelation Church, what does that that mean for us? God is revealing himself to people, to you, to me, to your family and friends, co-workers, neighbors, everyone. He's waving from across the room. He's knocking on doors. He's whistling at people, trying to get their attention. And if you're a Christian here this morning, if, if you are one of Jesus' people, two things, know Jesus and make him known. Know Jesus and make him known. We get the privilege to have a personal, intimate, growing relationship with the one person that can bring us ultimate satisfaction. What are we doing if we're not pursuing that? This is a good time, it's January 2nd, New Year's resolutions. I know everybody has different ideas about whether that's a good thing or not, but it's just a natural reset to go, how am I living my life? What am I doing with my time, with my energy, with my mind, with my heart, with my body, am I pursuing Jesus? Am I living in a way where I spend time with Jesus, where I pattern my life off of Jesus, where I, super cliche, but ask the question, what would Jesus do in this situation? This is what we are to be about, to know Jesus. Jesus. In church, we also get the privilege like Paul of telling people about Jesus, getting to know people where they're at, well enough to connect their history, their lived experience and their culture to the good news about Jesus, just like Paul did. Did you see the moves that he made to the Athenians? He didn't just show up and start with, Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you need to repent. He started off with, hey, let's talk about that unknown God thing that you've got going on. You guys are super religious, Let's, let's dig into that a little bit more. See, everybody's small story is a part of God's large one. And we get to figure out as Christians where those two fit together. The world is not the way we want it to be. And we are all on a search to figure out how to make it right. Right. And so when you think about your family, when you think about your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers that do not know Christ, ask the question, what what are they searching for? How are they pursuing what they think will bring them satisfaction? And how is the real answer to their problem, Jesus? That's how God is revealing himself to the people in your life that are far from him. And when you figure that out, then you'll be able to give them good news about how Jesus is king and how he is ultimately satisfying. But maybe you, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian this morning. You've, you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're here because you're interested. Maybe you're watching online. You've just heard the good news that Jesus Christ Son of God died on the cross to pay for sin and rose from the dead to conquer death. And he is the answer to everything that you are looking for. Jesus is the truest revelation of the God that created you to have all of your deepest longings fulfilled in him. And he wants to be in relationship with you. And that's my job to tell you the news. It's your job to do something about it. And you've got some options. Look at verse 32 back in Acts 17. When they, the people at the Areopagus, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris and others with them. So there's three options there. The first thing you could do when you hear the good news is you could ridicule. You make fun, silly Christians with their fairy tales. The problem with that is that I have found that really brilliant people throughout history have been Christians. And if the Christian faith that you know is one that's easy to make fun of, you probably don't understand it very well. Historic Christianity is the most historically robust philosophical and religious tradition the world has ever known. And if that's not been your experience, you've only interacted with a caricature of it. So before you ridicule, stick around, ask questions. Learn some more about the faith that you think is foolish. The second posture we see in Acts is interest. Some of the people said, hey, you know what? We'd like to hear more. I'm not convinced of what you're saying, Paul, but I'm interested. You should come back and tell us more. And if that's you, I would just invite you to, in saying that this church is a place where we like to do that. We, we like to ask questions. We like to scratch on things and and go deeper and and, and wrestle with ideas. See, I believe that that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the strongest thing that there is. That my faith is rooted in a person who is the son of God. And he can handle hard questions. He can handle tough ideas. Because all of us, whether we're Christian or not, we all have hard questions. There's all things that we don't understand about life and faith. And we're all looking for answers. And there's no better way to do that than in a community of people that are doing it together. And then the last thing that we see is some of them joined Paul and believed. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're ready to make a step towards Jesus toward the community of God's people. And I would just encourage you to don't let the day end with that feeling just kind of rattling around in your head. Do something about it. Talk to somebody about it. Say, what do I I need to do to follow Jesus? Following Jesus is a process that never ends, but it definitely begins. And maybe for you, it begins today. The baseline reality for the existence of Revelation Church is that God is not hidden. He is working in the hearts and lives of every one of us. Those that know him and those that don't yet know him. And Christian we have the opportunity both to know him and to tell other people about him. So let's hit, let's do some questions. Still haven't figured out how this phone works. Let's see here. Okay, practically Break this down with a specific example of an idol in 2022. How does one identify a specific idol in their life? What does it look like to make the transition from identifying that idol to replacing that with God or God's perspective? Yeah, so there's, just like in Athens, there's thousands of options for idols. An idol is anything that you are seeking as more important than God. And so that could be like a really terrible thing. Like like you just really like murdering people. That might be an idol. That would be wicked. But it could also be a really good thing. You are called to love your family but can it be that your family becomes something that prevents you from seeking Jesus? Here's one that, that's, that's, that's fun to, to poke at. Youth sports as an industry is an idol for many, many people, right? You, you have kids that are good at baseball or soccer or football, and you want to see them succeed and they like it, But also like you feel like, man, I I feel good when my kid wins. And I I like that feeling. So I'm going to pour into that because now they need to succeed in order for me to feel good. And games, well, games are always on Sunday. So throughout X season, we're just not going to be at church. And I don't think being at church every single Sunday is necessarily what has to happen all the time. But if you have a pattern of not being with God's people because you have to be on the football field, could that be an idol? Could that be something that's taking you away from following Jesus because you're getting your satisfaction out of watching your kid win or fulfilling some dream that you didn't get a chance to fulfill? Idols can be simpler than that. Think about the things that you do when you're sad. Think about the things that you do when you're angry. Think about the things that you do when you're bored. Do you jump on your phone? Do you drink a little bit more than you should? Do you eat a little bit more than you should? I'm not hungry, I'm just sad. I'm going to have ice cream. You are seeking satisfaction and fulfillment in a thing that will not satisfy you because only Jesus will satisfy those things. That's what an idol looks like. So a good diagnostic question for idols in your life is just to look at where you go when you have needs. What You don't even think about it. You just, you just go do that. And it might not be a bad thing in and of itself, but if it's not to Jesus that you're going, if you're not coming to God with, man, I'm really hurting right now, or I'm really angry about that thing, or I don't know, I'm, I'm confused, and I'm scared, and I don't know what to do. If you don't go to Christ for those things, then you might be worshiping an idol. There's a thousand different other examples we, we could talk about, but hopefully that's helpful. We're going to take communion like we do every week. We remind ourselves of the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. And it's a reminder that Jesus is the only one that truly satisfies our longings. The communion is food for us. That is, that's important that we, we take the bread and the cup and it goes into our bodies to nourish us. That's part of the picture that Jesus is painting. It's a reminder that we belong in relationship with one another. We don't, we don't do this alone. We commune with one another in communion. And it's a reminder of Jesus' death and his resurrection on our behalf, his payment for sin to make us fit to be the children of God. So as we start a new year, I would just encourage you to ask the question, how am I pursuing Jesus? Because I know that he's pursuing you. And how am I showing the good news of Jesus to other people that I know